0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Sammy and Dino.
2: Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. Oh, 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 oh. It ain't all Candyman and Bojangles.
1: A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here
2: is Mr. Wonderful, Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> my most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy. Prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. <laughs>
0: January 1960, the Sands Casino, Las Vegas. The marquee outside read Dean Martin in big letters, and under that in smaller letters, maybe Frank, maybe Sammy. If you made it into the Copa Room at the Sands on one of a couple dozen nights that winter, you might get to see all three perform. This was what Sinatra would dub the Summit at the Sands. Somewhere along the way, everyone else would start calling it the Rat Pack. Sammy had not been part of the original Rat Pack, but then none of them from the Sands crew had been. That had begun a decade earlier in the living rooms of Holmby Hills. Then as now the site of some of the most spectacular houses in Los Angeles, owned by some of the richest and most powerful people in the entertainment business. The term Rat Pack was coined by Lauren Bacall, who once walked in on a party including her husband, Humphrey Bogart, and their friends David Niven, Judy Garland, and others, all sopping drunk. Bacall took in the sight and said, You look like a goddamn Rat Pack. In 1949, Sinatra moved to Holmby Hills and soon became Kramer to the Bogart Seinfeld. When Bogart died in 1957, Sinatra was devastated. He had an almost Oedipal relationship with Bogart and Bacall. He's always here, Bogart once said to Frank. I think we're parent substitutes for him or something. I don't think Frank's an adult emotionally. After Bogart's death, Sinatra briefly became engaged to Bacall. But Sinatra wasn't really in a marrying mood. He saved me from the disaster our marriage would have been, Bacall later wrote, adding, he behaved like a complete shit. Soon after he and Bacall split up, Sinatra pursued what he perhaps really missed from his time at the Bogart house being part of a group of people who were, as Bacall put it, addicted to nonconformity, staying up late, drinking, laughing, and not caring what anyone thought or said about us. Under Sinatra's leadership, the group changed membership, and so did its vibe. Its activities were now rarely centered in the living rooms of mansions, and wives were not often invited. The Sinatra pack had its meetings in bars, clubs, and casinos. Its charter members were Sinatra and his only two close friends who could headline Vegas stages on their own, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Sinatra liked to call this group the Clan, with a C. Out of respect for Davis, Frank switched to calling it the Summit. But as we'll see he didn't stop joking about the Klan. In today's episode, we will explain what the original Rat Pack shows were really like and how the racial politics of Las Vegas in the 50s and 60s played into their vibe, which feels very weird today. We'll talk about the most significant Rat Pack movie, Ocean's Eleven, and how it reflects the open secret of the mafia's immense power in Las Vegas and as the 1960 election would reveal, the rest of America. Finally, the intersection of the Rat Pack, their quote unquote friends from Chicago and their actual friends from Boston, the Kennedys, will culminate in the tragic death of an actress who might've known too much about all of them. Join us, won't you, for part six of Sammy and Dino. Here are some things that happened at some or all of the Summit at the Sands shows. Frank, Sammy, and Dean would make a big thing of drawing straws to decide who would perform first, second, and last although Dean was pretty much preordained to go last because he was still the contracted headliner at the Sands and his drunk act benefited from the impression that he had spent the whole night lubricating himself while the other guys sang. In overplaying drunkenness, Dean put himself at a remove, which often also took him out of the line of fire. No one had to make fun of Dean because he was doing it himself. In some sense, he functioned as the probably tipsy audience member's point of identification on stage, except cooler and handsomer. He seemed to have the best understanding that what they were doing was ephemeral. And yet, to the extent that the Rat Pack functioned as the last gasp of an old adult monoculture idea of late night cool, A lot of the lasting value comes not from Frank's unparalleled ability to emotionally connect through song, and not from Sammy's total onstage virtuosity, and definitely not from the endless improvised bits, most of them racist or homophobic, but from Dean's persona as a man in a great suit who just wanted to gamble, get drunk to swinging music, and chase women. And yet, he never missed a word or a note. No small feat, considering that he was largely singing completely new versions of standards, such as this parody version of Almost Like Being in Love, in which he mocks his own supposed gambling problem, the fertility of his wife, and his compulsive philandering.
2: Start at where it says as he staggers in. Yeah! What a day this has been, what a hole I am in. Why it's almost like losing my mind. If I bet red or black, then it lands in the crack. You don't know just how much I am behind. When I walk in that lounge instantly, all the dealers Start fighting for me, and I'll lay you eight to ten, that my wife's that way again. Well, I got news for you, that my girlfriend is too. Almost like losing my mind.
0: This Weird owl style routine would cap a show that was all over the place by design with comedian Joey Bishop, who served as MC, just barely reining the rest of the boys in. The boys spoke to one another in a kind of if-you-know-you-know code, which was full of racial slang. Dean and Frank called each other Dago or Dag. They called Sammy Smokey, supposedly because he smoked a lot of cigarettes, although this evolved into the nickname Smokey the Bear, which seemed just a little bit racist. All women were called broads and never birds because for these guys, bird was slang for penis. They'd greet one another by asking, how's your bird? They did a lot of bits that playfully and arguably homophobically intimated that they were all intimate with one another's birds. When it was time for Sammy to take the stage after Frank finished singing, Dean would lift Sammy up from under his arms and carry him in, presenting the 5'3 Davis to Frank as an award from the NAACP. Sammy might push a cake into Joey Bishop's face. Sammy or Frank could maybe get away with singing one song sincerely. But at any point, any of the others were expected to interrupt the singer with jokes, alternate lyrics, or heckles. In one show, Frank was trying to croon pennies from heaven when Bishop and Peter Lawford walked across the stage wearing their tuxedo jackets on top and nothing but boxer shorts on the bottom. A bit later, Sammy flounced across the stage behind them, waving a scarf in a gay pantomime. At the end of this bit, Sammy slapped Frank on the butt. As cringy as it is to watch this extended gay joke today, it's also an example of how sometimes Sammy could insert himself into the nonsense on more or less equal footing to the other guys when they were all united in mocking something other than him. Other times, his race made him a punching bag. Within the Rat Pack, there was a fairly clear hierarchy. Frank was in charge, although even he could be taken down a peg by Dean or by Bishop, who would frequently rib Frank for some of his famous friends. How about
2: the good the mafia does? Fine organization.
0: Dean would sometimes be perceived as Sinatra's sidekick, but privately... Dean was his own man. If Frank wanted someone around who he could control, he'd call Sammy. Frank saw Sammy as his little brother and had genuine affection for him. But on stage, he spent decades hazing Sammy as though he was the runt of the frat. Unfortunately, a large number of Frank's onstage jokes were racial. Frank would make jokes about Sammy's taste for watermelon He'd make interracial sex panic jokes about the cigarette in Sammy's mouth being white. Sammy would make a big show of laughing to show he was a good sport. In this clip from one of the original Rat Pack shows at The Sands, during the long pauses between Frank's insults, Sammy can be seen doubling over in laughter.
2: I I wonder if I could have a spotlight, please like they give Belafonte up to the foot <laughs> Keep smiling, Smokey, so everybody knows where you are. <laughs> Why don't you be yourself and eat some ribs? <laughs> I'm
0: not much to look at.
2: You've got right.
0: <laughs> the last heckle comes from Dean, who usually saved his comic venom for himself, but sometimes joined Frank in ganging up on Sam. Later, during the same show, Dean and Frank wheel out a bar covered in a white sheet. Frank flips the white sheet over Sammy's head in an obvious allusion to a clan hood, and says...
2: All right, folks, put on your sheets and we'll start the meeting. Oh, come on!
0: Go bore a few holes in that and be somebody.
2: You bore some holes in that, you can be anybody you want to be. I told you working those trains are going to come in handy, Smokey.
0: Sammy rips the sheet off of his head and, either legitimately unnerved or extremely convincingly acting as such, goes to the other end of the stage to cool off. The boys returned to the white sheet clanhood joke a couple of times before the end of that show. This kind of thing makes up the bulk of the portions of the Summit at the Sands that were filmed and are available today. And they obviously don't feel cool or funny. And you watch it and you wonder why and how Sammy put up with this demonstration that Sinatra's group may no longer be called the Clan, but that any sensitivity Sammy might've had about that name or his race in general was fair game for mockery. Of course, I didn't attend these shows live, but I've watched every clip of them that I can find and the extent to which the other guys actively prevent Sammy from showing how talented he is seems pretty shocking. Every now and then, the guys will let Sammy just do his act uninterrupted for a minute or two, and he'll just do a few casual dance steps that surpass the level of difficulty of anything anyone else is doing on that stage by miles or he'll do impersonations of Tony Bennett and Nat King Cole, switching seamlessly between the two of them from verse to verse in the same song. But for the most part, the rest of the Rat Pack treat him as though he's lucky to be there. Harry Belafonte, who was also a big star in Vegas at this point and would occasionally socialize with Sammy and Frank observed that Sammy felt lucky to be there. Here's a clip from the audiobook of Belafonte's autobiography, My Song, read by Myron Willis.
1: Frank wasn't a racist, far from it. But some of those jokes did touch on race. Add Sammy to the mix and suddenly the banter took on a new edge. It was Sammy who did that, making fun of himself, playing the clown in Frank's court, the clown in blackface. He was the one who'd say he was not only short and ugly, but black and Jewish. To have Frank include him as one of the pack was the single greatest honor of his life. And so Sammy, lifelong song and dance man that he was, lived to keep the master entertained. He constantly demeaned himself, breaking into his little black boy routine.
0: Sammy was also treading carefully in a Vegas that was still largely separate and unequal. When the Will Mastin trio started playing Vegas, and for years after that, the casino owners and club managers had told them that they had to stay on the outskirts of town and only use the service entrance and never actually drink, eat, or gamble in the establishments in which they played. Because the patrons of Vegas were from the South and the Midwest, and they only wanted to see Black people on stage and wouldn't tolerate sitting next to them at bars or restaurants or, God forbid, standing close to them in an elevator or swimming with them in the same pool. In fact, there are stories of white patrons demanding that the casinos drain their pools after Sammy or Harry Belafonte or Lena Horne was spotted swimming in them. The Will trio had broken the color line by being allowed to stay at the last Frontier casino in 1955, and Belafonte had integrated the Riviera by refusing to take no for an answer. But these were exceptions, and otherwise, the rules remained unchanging. Then, in May 1955, the Moulin Rouge opened. Located between the strip and the part of town where black people were traditionally forced to live, this was promoted as Vegas's first integrated casino. Its opening was heralded by a photo of black Moulin Rouge showgirls on the cover of Life magazine. The Moulin Rouge didn't exactly encourage further integration of Vegas. The big white-only casinos now had even more of an excuse to remain segregated because now there was a place where their talent could go after their shows. White performers went to the Moulin Rouge after their shows, too. Frank, Bing Crosby, and Bob Hope were just a few of the white stars who were drawn to the novel after-hours party scene. That scene didn't last long. The Moulin Rouge went out of business less than six months after it opened. A victim of bankruptcy amidst whispers that the local banks had cut off the casino's credit lines for racist reasons. It reopened under new management in 1957, but lost its liquor license when it was revealed that the new white owner-operators were charging higher prices for drinks to Black customers than to whites. The site was shuttered and remained so in March 1960, when the hotel served as the site for the announcement that the Strip's casinos would integrate. The announcement had been made under pressure from the NAACP. And this happened two months after those shows at the Sands that you just heard clips from. But even with the announcement of integration, it's not like things got that much better right away. Even six years later, Sammy said that the casino owners would encourage him to stay in his suite in between shows rather than mingle with the largely white crowds on the casino floor or in the restaurant. Ultimately, only one thing had changed, he said. Quote, at least they're ashamed of it now. So, if being part of the Summit at the Sands made Sammy Davis Jr. the butt of constant racist jokes, to be a Black man front and center on a stage full of white stars was a big deal in Las Vegas in January 1960. And it was something only Sammy could lay claim to.
1: This episode is brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on movies starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try MUBI free for 30 days at MUBI.com slash YMRT. That's MUBI.com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. If Frank was at the top of the Rat Pack hierarchy, followed by Dean and then Sammy, at the next tier was Peter Lawford. Lawford had been an MGM star and was married to John F. Kennedy's sister, Pat. Frank had known Peter at MGM, had fallen out with him over the suspicion that he had slept with Frank's ex-wife, Ava Gardner, and rekindled a friendship with Lawford at a dinner party in 1958. By then, Lawford had stumbled into the inner circle of the Kennedys, a place Frank himself wanted to be. Frank began playfully and publicly referring to Peter as brother in Lawford and Peter brokered an alliance between his brother-in-law and Sinatra. Sinatra liked to use his power to help friends who could reciprocate. Once Peter brought Frank into the Kennedy fold, Frank repaid him by getting Lawford cast in the 1959 war film, Never So Few. This would re-spark Lawford's film career. Sammy was supposed to be in that movie too, But then he did something shocking, something which may help to explain how willing he seemed to be to be roasted by Frank about a year later on the stage at the Sands. In a radio interview in Chicago, Sammy spoke frankly about feeling belittled by Frank. I love Frank and he was the kindest man in the world to me when I lost my eye in an auto accident and wanted to kill myself, Sammy allowed. It was what he said next that caused the trouble. Quote, There are many things he does that there are no excuses for. Talent is not an excuse for bad manners. I don't care if you're the most talented person in the world. It does not give you the right to step on people and treat them rotten. This is what he does occasionally. End quote. According to Lawford, When Frank found out about this interview, he used his power to get Sammy cut from Never So Few. That part would have meant the world to Sammy, who at that point had just shot Porgy and Bess, which was only his second real movie. He also needed the $75,000 that, at Sinatra's insistence, MGM had promised to pay him. But now Frank had the studio withdraw the offer and had the part meant for Sammy rewritten so that it could be played by Steve McQueen. Also, according to Lawford, in that moment of betrayal, Sinatra called Sammy, quote, a dirty N-word bastard. Frank completely froze Sammy out for two months When they were both in Miami playing in casinos next door to one another, Frank told the doorman of his hotel that he didn't want Sammy let in. Part of the problem was that Sammy had given this quote on the radio in Chicago, the hometown of Sam Giancana and other mafia friends of Frank's. He felt Davis had deliberately picked the venue to hurt him the most. That was the unforgivable part, to embarrass Frank in front of the big boys, said Lawford. It wasn't until Sammy publicly apologized that Frank let him back into the fold, just in time. Sammy doesn't mention Never So Few at all in his autobiography, Yes I Can, but he does effusively praise Sinatra for getting him the part in the first film they would actually make together. Ocean's Eleven, at a salary of $125,000. What Sammy may or may not have known is that his salary, though large compared to what he had been paid for his previous movies, was a drop in the bucket considering that, through their production companies and deals worked out for them by their powerful agents, Frank and Dean had shareholder participation in Ocean's Eleven and future Rat Pack movies they would get paid in perpetuity. Sammy got paid once. Incidentally, when Sinatra started his own record label, Reprise, he actually offered Sammy the same deal he gave Dean. The company would own the rights to distribute their records for a short time, but the permanent ownership of the masters would revert back to the artist. Sammy, who was short-sighted about his financial prospects, sold his master's back to Reprise for quick cash. Sammy was always being taught the lesson that the house always wins. And at the same time, it seems like he never really learned it. And knowing his inability to get out of that cycle lends a little extra pathos to his performance in Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven is a movie about a motley crew of men who rig a blackout in order to simultaneously rob all the biggest casinos in Vegas. That's the plot of the 1960 original and that's the plot of the 2001 Steven Soderbergh remake. But other than that, they're very different films. In her unauthorized biography of Frank Sinatra, which lays bare the singer's affiliations with the mafia, Kitty Kelly called the original Ocean's Eleven, quote, a lighthearted tale of the mob and their casinos. When I watched the movie recently, for probably the 10th time, but the first time in about five years, it didn't strike me as being so lighthearted. This time around, I enjoyed it more than I ever have, but it felt like a weirdly poignant movie about the possibility of second acts in American lives of middle-aged men reinventing themselves 15 years after their collective moments of glory. But the film is ultimately cynical, if not fatalistic, at that very idea. Dean is given dialogue that foreshadows that the plan is ultimately the nostalgic fantasy of men past their prime. Note that, somewhat confusingly, Dean's character in this movie is named Sam.
2: I got a suggestion. What is it, Sam? Forget it. Forget what you mean? The whole deal, forget the whole deal. Believe me, I like to swing like the rest of you guys, but you haven't got a plan here, you got a pipe load. Is this another of your morbid jokes, Danny, you sadist? What's wrong with our story, Sam? For one thing, 15 years. This ain't a combat team, it's alumni meeting. Any of you liars want to claim that you're half the man you were in '45? Can you run as fast? Can you think as fast? Can you mix it up as good as you used to? Well, I sure can't. And, Dan, if you want to try and catch lightning in a bottle, you go ahead. But don't try and catch yesterday. Old times are only good when you've had them. Sam, some guys grow old without turning chicken. Did you hear about it? Okay, Lieutenant Lionheart. I grant you're brave, but the question now is, How dumb are you? I'm the only one here that knows Las Vegas. Why don't you guys believe me when I tell you the percentage is always with the house? With the house? The percentage is with the people who are rigging the game, and in this case, it's us. You are a deserter, under fire, a traitor! Oh, shut up or I'll step on you. The
0: 1960 Ocean's Eleven is also frank about the fact that the mob runs Vegas and that supposedly legit institutions are just as corrupt as the mafia. In one kind of incredible scene to have been filmed just months before John F. Kennedy won the presidency in part thanks to the financial efforts of mobsters, the top four Rat Packers, led by JFK's actual brother-in-law, joke in the driest of deadpan about how they're going to use their stolen money to buy political power.
2: Use your loot right. You can order them to New Orleans for the weekend you like to explain that, Professor? No, it's simple. By turning money into power. I think I'll buy me some votes and go into politics. Hey, now, that's a good idea, baby boy. <laughs> You'd make a good notary public. you would make a better coroner, one of them <laughs> laughing coroners. <laughs> I'm the one that's going into politics. What's going to be your platform, big Sam? Then repeal the 14th and the 20th Amendment, take the vote away from the women, and make slaves out of them. Hey, now, that's something that's real constructive. Yep. Hey, will it cost much? Oh, no, we'd have the price controls. No inflation on slaves. Vote for Sam Harmon. Help stamp out mental health. Uh, you got a better platform? Oh, sure. Yeah. Pay off your own party. Settle for an appointment. Yeah, now that's real deep thinking. Gentlemen, I'd like for you to meet our latest senator. What a mm. terrible thought. <laughs> Why don't you become an ambassador? You could be a big man in some foreign country. No, make that a little foreign country. We don't want a big enemy. Yeah. A little country like Andorra. Or Pomona. What about a little rock? Hey, fellas, Shoot. you have any idea how much money a man can steal if he was something like Commissioner of Indian Affairs? That's what I'll be, Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Now that you'll never be. Because <laughs> I'm going to be Secretary of the Interior and I won't appoint you That's Commissioner of Indian Affairs. No, I won't.
0: I don't know that we're supposed to take any of this as sincere political commentary any more than we're supposed to take the misogynistic joke that Dean makes in the middle of it as a serious suggestion that women would be more useful to him as slaves. Well, maybe there's a kernel of sincerity to all of it. Certainly, the original Ocean's Eleven has a gravity to it that's missing from the remake, which has not one but two happy endings, one financial and one romantic, while the Rat Pack version ends with the gang losing all their money, and Frank Sinatra's character seemingly having forgotten all about trying to reunite with his estranged wife, played by Angie Dickinson. But one thing you can say for Soderbergh's version is George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt do not put shoe polish on their faces in a blackface gag, as Sinatra, Martin, and Lawford do in the original. The only reason why that scene is worth mentioning is that it includes a very strange meta-joke for Sammy. The three white guys are passengers in the garbage truck he drives for a living. Using shoe polish, they black up their faces as a disguise for the getaway drive.
2: What's so funny? I knew this color would come in handy one day. Hey, Josh. Yeah? How do you get this stuff off? Well, what I usually...
0: This scene offers an example of how sometimes Sammy got to own the racial joke, but usually, ultimately, the white guys would throw it back in his face. But on the whole, Sammy is surprisingly centered in Ocean's Eleven. His character is, as Sinatra puts it on screen, the main cog in the getaway plan. He gets an almost throwaway moment of emotional, racial realism when he has to explain why he's driving a garbage truck instead of playing professional baseball.
2: You know, when I got out of the Army, the only club that was open was down south. No spot in the outfield. Can you imagine how I would have made out a one-eyed third baseman in Mobile?
0: Any three of the main stars could have sang the Ocean's Eleven theme song but it was assigned solely to Sammy, who sings it three times over the course of the movie. It gets an optimistic treatment.
2: EO 11, someday I'll have me a penthouse, stacks and stacks of folding green. EO 11, EO 11, it's all a state of mind. Whether or not you find
0: That place down there Or heaven As well as a defeated reprise at the very end of the film, as the 11 partners walk the strip in the blinding light of day, having pulled their last chance heist for nothing.
2: Once I had me a dream But that dream Kicked in the head Dream dead Some judges have to say I'm putting you away
0: The last shot of Ocean's Eleven is of Sammy, pulling up the rear of the gang while this song plays on the soundtrack. After every other member of the cast has passed by the camera lens, we get a few seconds to watch Sammy walking, smoking, and then as the screen is fading to black, he slows to a stop. In making Sammy the anchor of the parting shot, and in making him the only voice of the film's plot song, Ocean's Eleven essentially confirms that Sammy's character, Josh, is the film's main protagonist and storyteller. And that's a big deal when you consider that he was the only black member of the large ensemble cast of this blockbuster hit movie. Ocean's Eleven was one of the top grossing movies of 1960, and only one other movie on that top 10, had a key part for a black actor at all. That was the year's biggest hit, Spartacus, in which former football player Woody Strode played an African gladiator who fights Kirk Douglas. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. netsuite.com/remember. netsuite dot com slash remember.
3: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: Sinatra's true genius was in orchestrating nightly shows at The Sands, concurrent to the production of Ocean's Eleven, which made daily headlines a show that consisted almost entirely of half-drunk middle-aged men fucking around, drew crowds full of such notable spectators as Lucille Ball, Kirk Douglas, Sid Charisse, and Peter Lorre. The many newspaper articles about these shows gave gossip consumers the impression of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the making of Ocean's 11, a movie which would hardly ever feature its big stars in the same frame let alone singing, dancing, and mocking one another. To see that, you had to be there in person, and the allure of that show was strong. In February 1960, it drew Peter's brother-in-law, Jack Kennedy, who was running for president at the time. In fact, he was in Vegas to blow off steam before primary season got underway. Kennedy attended the show on February 7th, and partied with the Rat Pack for a couple of days. One night when Kennedy was holding court in a hotel room at the Sands, Lawford took Sammy aside and said, if you want to see what a million dollars in cash looks like, go into the next room. There's a brown leather satchel in the closet, open it. It's a gift from the hotel owners for Jack's campaign. Sammy was scared to go near the bag of money And he didn't want to wait for the promised arrival of four wild girls either. I got out of there, Sammy said later. Some things you don't want to know. Lawford later described the three-way friendship between he, his brother-in-law and Sinatra like this. Quote, I was Frank's pimp and Frank was Jack's. It sounds terrible now, but then it was really a lot of fun. Having a lot of consequence-free sex does sound like a lot of fun. However, one truly terrible aspect is that there were consequences, particularly because of how these men treated a woman named Judy Campbell. Judy was a 20-something divorcee who Frank occasionally hooked up with. Johnny Roselli, the notorious fixer who got mob shit done for Hollywood, introduced Frank to Judy. Looks like Liz Taylor, Roselli said, but nicer, a real sweet kid. Frank introduced Judy to JFK, and they began a relationship. Frank also introduced Judy to his closest mobster friend, Sam Giancana, and they began a relationship. Sammy didn't have a relationship with Judy. Sammy had just begun the relationship that would result in his second marriage, but we'll talk about that next week. Peter did try to start a relationship with her, but Judy turned him down. And Dean had a relationship with Judy, but his was strictly platonic. He thought of Judy as someone he could talk to. Maybe this is why she was so appealing to all those other men. But there was also the fact that Judy never asked for anything from them, much to Frank's chagrin. He introduced Judy to all of his male friends and encouraged her to capitalize on these connections. When she wouldn't, seemingly content to simply enjoy the company of some of the biggest singing stars in the world, one of the most feared gangsters, and the possible future president of the United States, Frank exploded in frustration. The things you could have if you weren't so fucking stupid, Sinatra said to Judy. Wake up and realize what you've got in the palm of your hand. Frank was not going to let such an opportunity for influence pass him by. He actively worked as a connector between the Kennedys and the underworld machine. There was no hiding the mafia in Vegas. The bosses and their compatriots loved the Rat Pack shows and could almost nightly be seen in the front row. A major investor in the Sands was Meyer Lansky, a major beneficiary was Doc Straker, a Jersey racketeer who had brought in Jack and Trotter to serve as a front for the casino's entertainment. This way, men like Frank and Dean could say they didn't work for the mob. They worked for Jack and Trotter. And they did say this, frequently joking about and Trotter on stage at the Sands. But Frank was also working for himself to ensure his loyalty the mobbed up consortium that controlled the casino had allowed Frank to buy a 2% share in the sands. Sinatra would eventually come to control a 9% stake. And the rumor was that the Meyer Lansky gang had gifted him the other seven points. During the Ocean's 11 period, Sinatra didn't try to hide his connections to the underworld machine. In fact, he flaunted them. And before the election, the Kennedy camp seemed happy to take advantage of Sinatra's connections to guys like Skinny D'Amato, the old impresario of the 500 Club, who had learned from Jersey gangster Nucky Johnson how to use the influence and cash of organized crime to manipulate voters. Sometimes that meant bribing minor local officials. In 1960, it meant that they would, as Kitty Kelly put it, quote, get out the vote for Kennedy any way they could. After the summit at the Sands, Sinatra threw himself into the Kennedy campaign full force. And that summer, he played a leading role in organizing the Hollywood contingent at the Democratic National Convention. Dean largely absented himself, Mr. I don't care, couldn't be moved to change his tea time for any candidate, but Sammy wanted to be part of it. He still wanted to do whatever Frank did, and he still wanted a seat at the table with all of his white celebrity friends. And he should have had that seat. So many people he was close to were working on behalf of Kennedy, from Frank and Judy Garland to Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. When Sammy was invited to appear on stage at the convention, it was a double confirmation that he belonged. He belonged to the inner circle of white Hollywood and he could plug into the center of white political power. Or so he thought, but an invitation wasn't a guarantee of smooth sailing. Frank had invited Sammy to join him on stage at the convention to lead the singing of the national anthem. When Sinatra introduced Davis, he was audibly booed. The boos were centralized in the part of the convention hall occupied by delegates from Alabama and Mississippi. Frank whispered to Sammy, those dirty sons of bitches, don't let them get you. But they did get to him. Sammy was devastated. And as we'll see in our next episode, though he tried to remain loyal to Kennedy and the Democratic Party, They just kept sending signals that they didn't want him. As we'll see later in our series, this would help to drive Sammy in the direction of some of the most corrupt right-wing politicians of the second half of the 20th century. In early 1962, Sinatra himself would be forcibly amputated from the Kennedy circle. By then, Bobby Kennedy was deep into a campaign against organized crime, and a decision was made that Sinatra's mob ties were too blatant for the president to associate with him. From Bobby's perspective, Sinatra brought out the worst in his brother. In 1960, Kennedy and Sinatra had shared a girlfriend, Judy Campbell, with Sam Giancana. Giancana and Kennedy may have also had simultaneous relationships with another woman singer Phyllis McGuire. Sinatra had spent months preparing to host JFK at his Palm Springs home on March 24, 1962. Two days earlier, J. Edgar Hoover visited Bobby Kennedy and told him he knew about Judy Campbell. Before the end of the day, Lawford was dispatched to deliver the message to Frank that the president wasn't coming after all. Sinatra shot The Messenger. Just as easily as Kennedy had cut him off, Frank cut off Peter. Lawford was no longer cast in any of Sinatra's films, and he claimed that Frank made Dean and Sammy end their friendships with him, too. Although this is a bit disingenuous, since Peter and Sammy starred in several movies together in the 60s and 70s, and partied together, too. But certainly you can see Sammy siding with the leader of the pack on this matter. Meanwhile, Dean probably didn't consider Lawford a real friend to begin with. Sinatra had been happy to be the spoke connecting the underworld to the White House. But when the presidential connection was lobbed off, he unwisely invested more deeply in the mafia. A literal example of that investment was the Cal Neva Casino. Located on the banks of Lake Tahoe, where the states of California and Nevada meet, the Cal Neva Resort had been a celebrity getaway since the 1920s. In 1960, it came under new management when it was bought by a consortium, including Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Skinny D'Amato, who was fronting for Sam Giancana. At the time of the purchase, a resident of the Cal Neva was Joe Kennedy Sr. The FBI was keeping tabs on the joint, and they believed JFK's father helped make the deal to ensure that under the new ownership, the mob would have free reign. A renovation commenced, and by the time the Cal Neva was ready for reopening in July 1962, Dean had given up his ownership points, reportedly because he didn't want to be so financially tangled with Giancana. He thought it was safer and probably more lucrative for him to have Frank pay him a fee to perform at the casino. Gone were the days when Dean Martin would let anyone own a piece of him. That year in his act at the Sands, he joked, I'm the only singer around who has 10% of four gangsters. When Dean wasn't performing, he still liked to cameo on the casino floor as a blackjack dealer. If Dean was a natural dealer, Frank was a born gambler. He was obsessed with Baccarat and was personally responsible for bringing it to the Sands after playing it in the south of France. He was so addicted to roulette that when he wasn't in Vegas, he'd call in bets over the phone. With Dean out of the Cal Neva equation, Frank had taken a larger stake He was now fully business partners with Giancana, who was well known to be the captain of the Chicago mafia. By this time, of course, Sinatra had been excommunicated by the Kennedys, a fact that his supposed gangster friends were well aware of. On a wiretapped phone call with Giancana, Johnny Roselli gossiped about how the Kennedys had treated Sinatra, quote, like a whore. You fuck them, you pay them, and then they're through. The Cal Neva would be one of the backdrops for the sad last days for a woman who was treated just that way by the Kennedys and by Sinatra. Her death marked a loss of innocence for anyone who had been on the inside, who had been paying attention to the ways in which the good guys and the bad guys seemed to all behave the same and profit the same. It definitely marked a turning point for Dean Martin. In the spring of 1962, Dean had been cast in a new movie called Something's Got to Give, about a man whose first wife, presumed to have been dead, suddenly shows up as he's about to marry someone else. The dead woman who turns up alive would be played by Marilyn Monroe, who had requested Dean as her co-star. They had known each other for a long time. They were friends, not lovers. In 1961, about a year after her divorce from Arthur Miller, Marilyn started an affair with Frank, which he ultimately ended. But Marilyn still hung around, something like the Shirley MacLaine character in Some Came Running. She liked Dean and Peter Lawford. They were nice to her. She liked the Kennedys, too. While the first family was still ostensibly on good terms with Sinatra, Marilyn and Bobby began an affair. This was all happening while Marilyn and Dean were supposed to be making a movie, but she kept calling in sick. During one of her absences, she flew to New York to sing Happy Birthday to Mr. President. Dean loved Marilyn, and though he usually had little patience with other actors, He supported her through all the delays she caused, even throwing a party on set for her birthday. Monroe repaid the favor by picking up Dean's son, Dino, in a limo and taking him to a Dodgers game. A few days later, 20th Century Fox fired her from the movie and filed a breach of contract suit against her, demanding a half million dollars in damages. When the studio announced that shooting would begin again with Lee Remick in Marilyn's role, Dean announced that he quit. I signed to do the picture with Marilyn Monroe, Martin said in a statement, and I will do it with no one else. She had two months to live. Marilyn was frequently seen that summer at the Cal Neva, often in a stupor. She was beautiful, recalled composer Julie Stein but there was something in her eyes that spelled disaster. On opening night in late June, after watching Sinatra sing, she overdosed. A month later, Dean headlined at the Cal Neva and that night, Skinny D'Amato was unnerved by the things coming out of Marilyn's mouth. The men around her were afraid that she was a loose cannon, that she knew too much about all of them. They wished she would go away and stop haunting the scene of so many crimes. Frank was particularly cruel to Marilyn that summer. When Peter Lawford walked her into the Cal Neva on opening night, Sinatra wasn't sure which one he was less happy to see. But she kept showing up. One guest who joined Monroe at Sinatra's Palm Springs house in the weeks before she died remembered Frank yelling at her to shut up, dismissing her as Norma Jean, calling her stupid to her face. Monroe was found dead in her bed of an apparent pill overdose on August 6th. Dean's daughter wrote that her father rushed back to LA from a family vacation near Santa Barbara when he heard the news. Other reports say he was in Vegas for a gig at the time. Dino was asked to be a pallbearer at her funeral, which he was happy to do, as happy as you can be to help carry the dead body of someone you cared for. But then Joe DiMaggio banned Dean and Frank and most of Marilyn's other Hollywood friends from the funeral. Frank was busy anyway. In the days after Marilyn's death, he was supposed to answer to the Nevada Gaming Control Board who had been tipped off that Giancana, who was on their black book of known criminals who were supposed to be banned from all gaming facilities, had been spotted at the Calneva. Sinatra's gaming license was taken away and he was forced to give up his shares in the Calneva. In death, it was not hard to see Marilyn Monroe as the collateral damage of the intersection of the mob and the Kennedys and Sinatra that she had fallen into the black hole at the center of the Venn diagram where they all overlapped. Dean had done what he could to be loyal to her. His statement that he wouldn't act in Something's Gotta Give without her was the strongest show of support she received from any star in the press in the months before she died. But what did it matter in the end when all these other men had just seen her as something to pass around and then push away I don't want to say that the death of Marilyn Monroe inflamed Dean Martin's dormant morality, but it was the one thing he couldn't seem to joke about. In a rare interview a couple of weeks later, he got quiet when he was asked if he had anything to say about her passing. No, he said, she was a wonderful girl. After that cursed summer of 1962, Dino would no longer play into the pretense that they were all just having fun. More than ever, his motto became, to quote a movie about gangsters made 30 years later, fuck you, pay me. Within a year, Frank Sinatra's run as the biggest star in the world would be winding down. Sammy and Dean had new peaks ahead of them. Next week, We will focus on Sammy's glorious mid 60s, during which he became a Broadway star, a best-selling author, was almost killed by the mafia for nearly marrying one actress and was exiled from one of Sinatra's inner circles for actually marrying another. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod. We are on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you go to our website, you youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources, and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. Perfect for the holidays. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.